Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide. By your side. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is Friday. We have reached the end of another uh, tumultuous week in the dangerous international world of politics, uh, of the war in Ukraine, uh, of tax rises, uh, of NHS strikes. I think there's another one going on today, actually. Uh, and it must be a strike. It's Friday. After all, uh, there's, I think, university lectures have walked out as well. Who cares? I don't think anybody else uh, matters, really, do they? 0344-499-1000 is the number. And Winnicom is going to join us first up this morning because we have much to talk about. Lee Anderson has kick-started a very interesting conversation. And today I don't just want to talk about whether or not the death penalty is a good thing. He is being blamed, of course, uh, for wanting to bring back the death penalty which is nothing of the sort like what he actually said. What Lee Anderson actually said was that he believed in certain cases, in particular cases where there was absolutely no shadow of a doubt about a person's guilt or innocence, i.e. when there were hundreds of witnesses and or video um, evidence of something actually being committed, like the Lee Rigby case, then in some cases like that, he said, it's hard to disagree with the death penalty. Of course, the lefties have all spiralled out of control and started saying, he's a monster, he wants to kill people, what about the innocents who would be killed by mistake? Well, none of that was anything like what he said. But what I would like to do is take that conversation and move it into another area and talk about sentencing and talk about dangerous criminals being locked up uh, being locked up for longer because Anne Whittakin was a former prisons minister and she knows a thing or two about the way the prison system operates. And what I want to know is why so many dangerous criminals get let out so early in their sentencing, uh, having served only half the time, and why once they are out back on the streets again, they are monitored very, very badly and in fact mostly do recidivistically um, offend again. What we know is that every single six-day period, every single week in this country, somebody's murdered by someone on probation. And that, I'm afraid, is a terrible, terrible legacy of any government, whether it's the fault of this government or whether it's the fault of previous governments, I'm not really interested in. What I am interested in is fixing it so that the world, and Britain in particular, is a safer place. We're going to talk also about high standards this morning because Dominic Raab has given an interview to the Daily Telegraph in which he says high standards do not make you a bully. He's accused, of course, of bullying civil servants, accused of making them... Uh, turn to tears, accused of making them feel suicidal or being so horrible to them. Well, I don't buy it. I don't think Dominic Raab is a bully. Uh, I think he might have been a bit of a robust boss, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. We're going to talk some more about that. We're also going to talk about, uh, for want of a better phrase, Freaky Friday. Nobody seems to be working at all. I walked past uh, what was a hole in the ground this morning. Uh, it's been work worked on all, all week. There's been workmen in the hole fixing it from a power company. There's been vans parked from the power company. There's been two people outside the hole watching it. There's been people directing traffic around it. There's been all sorts of fences put up today because it's Friday. The hole isn't finished, by the way. There's nobody there, nobody working. So now not only do the office workers work from home, but the people who don't work in an office, who actually have to go and work digging up the roads, also take Friday off. What is going on? 0344 499 
1,000 is the number. We've got to take loads of calls from you, of course, as well. We'll talk about Ukraine. We'll talk about why there's now pressure uh, on the Tories to bring taxes down. Front page of the Daily Mail. When will the Treasury get the message over tax? Because it looks as though AstraZeneca has said that there are discouraging levels of taxation in this country right now, even as we speak. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Let us, without further ado, go straight to Anne Widdicombe, former uh, MP, of course, former MEP as well, uh, former government minister. Uh, Anne, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. This very interesting conversation that has been sort of reverberating around various um, chambers, whether they be echo chambers or not, about what Lee Anderson had to say. I mean, of course, the left is willfully misrepresenting what Lee Anderson said, because he never said we should bring back the death penalty. He just said that it was understandable in certain cases that there was a very good argument for having it. And he also said in the same breath, it probably won't ever come back. So, I mean, you know, the the, the sort of the the raft of madness that's gone around since then um, is is really uncalled for. But what I would say is it's good that we're talking about it because I would like to have a conversation about sentencing, about why our our prison system doesn't seem to work, why there's no space in it, and why people are let out of prison so soon. Right. Um, Just let me make a comment on the death penalty since that's how you introduced this. You're quite right. I mean, Lee Anderson didn't say, let's bring it back. He just gave the case for it. Uh, I've been making the case for it uh, for many years. Um... But when I was Shadow Home Secretary, I didn't waste any time on trying to bring it back because in those days we couldn't have done anyway because of EU law, Mm. uh, but also because I recognised that there just wasn't a majority in Parliament for doing that. But the biggest argument, as far as I'm concerned, for the death penalty are the statistics from that five-year experimental period when um, we abolished the death penalty And we continued to collect statistics on the basis of the division between capital murder and non-capital murder, other forms of homicide. Mm. And the capital murder rate in that period when we didn't have the death penalty went up 125%. Interesting. 125%. Now, to me, that is the ultimate argument that the death penalty is a deterrent. Uh, yes. Moving, sorry. No, I was going to yeah. say, well, well, it, it is. And that's not a statistic I've heard before, because we always hear from uh, the opposition to the death penalty lot that basically it's not a deterrent. Uh, well, that is a nonsense. I mean, there is no way of measuring whether it's a deterrent mm. or not when you don't have it. Um, and as I say, in that in that five year experimental period, when we had had it and could bring it back in that five year experimental period, when we collected those statistics carefully, uh, that was the result, 125%. Now, if somebody says that's not a deterrent, I want to hear, please, um, what their statistical argument actually Mm. is. And if it's based on now, well, we don't divide it up between capital and non-capital murder anymore. You know, we we don't collect the statistics that way. So how can they possibly say it is or it isn't Mm. a deterrent? No, exactly right. And it seems to me that the overarching view uh, of the justice system and of the prison system in this country 
by the people that run it is that everybody can be rehabilitated, that everybody must have a chance to have another go at being a d decent citizen, and that effectively, yes, you can be sent to jail for a long time, but eventually what we'd like to see is you becoming a better person and we'll let you back out into society. And I think that's the wrong premise on which to run a justice system. Well, just to give some balance on the other side of that argument, think back to the, um, the terrorist attack at London Bridge. Mm. And two of the people who took on the terrorist and who saved lives were convicted murderers mm. uh, who were going through rehabilitation back into the communities. Let's just remember the other side of it. And also... I'm not I'm, saying you can't rehabilitate people. What I'm saying is the premise that they operate from is that everybody can be the, that man or that woman. No, that really isn't the premise they operate from, but they get it wrong. I mean, let, let's say that. They, they, they get it wrong. You don't hear about all the cases they get right, but they do. The parole board does get it wrong. Uh, and when they get it wrong, the result can be another human tragedy. But I don't think there's any premise, because I, mean, I talked to prison governors the whole time, you know, and they would raise their eyebrows if you suggested that everybody can be rehabilitated. That premise isn't there. The question, the challenging question, is deciding who can be and who can't be. That's where it goes wrong, and that's what needs looking at. Yes. And really needs looking at. And does sentencing not also need looking at, though, as well, Anne? Because a lot of sentencing structures put, you know, um, a sort of, um, I don't know, a straitjacket, if you like, on some judges who can only do certain things. They can only make yeah. certain sentences available because that's the structure of the system. If you go back to the 1990s, um, when I was in the Home Office and Michael Howard was the Home Secretary, uh, we did actually propose uh, what is called honesty in sentencing. So if you give somebody 10 years... They do 10 years, mm. you know, they don't do five or seven and a half. They do the 10 years. Right. Uh, so we proposed honesty in sentencing, but um, which was then dropped by Jack Straw when the Labour Party came in. But I do think there was a problem there because at the moment, a judge, if he gives 10 years, knows that you'll do five. So if he wants to uh, ensure that you're going to do 10 years, then he'll give you 15, 20. Mm. Um we suspected that if you went for honesty in sentencing, the judge would give five because he would know that you'd do the whole five and that therefore it would look as if sentences were really coming down and the deterrent effect of long sentences would just disappear. Right. So again, it's complex, but I agree with you entirely and have done for a long time uh, that we need to look again uh, at the sentencing structure and also the way that we do confine judges. I mean, judges will occasionally say from the bench, you know, I would like to have done X, but I find yeah. that I can only do what. Right. Exactly right. And I mean, two high profile cases just this week alone, David Carrick, the Metropolitan Police officer yep. who's been jailed for 30 life terms, but could still come out, albeit um, not until we 78, but still possibility uh, is that he could come out. Uh, and Gary Glitter, of course, much more high profile, um, sentenced to 16 years in prison uh, for, 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 for offences against children. He then somehow gets released after eight years. And, and I mean, I'm just thinking an awful lot of people have said to me, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you let somebody like him out? Well, somebody somewhere has concluded that he's no longer a risk. Um, well, that's but, clearly bonkers, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked at the evidence either way. Well, I do know because he's committed these uh, acts against children all of his life. Uh, the idea that he suddenly decided no longer is he going to do that so that he can now be released is for the birds, isn't it? Well, in, in this much, that it is very rare for somebody who is a natural paedophile... 
uh, just suddenly not to become uh, a natural paedophile. It's, it's a lifelong battle. Uh, and um, there used to be a program in our prisons, I don't know whether there still is, called the Sex Offender Treatment Program, yeah. uh, which anecdotally claimed great success when you looked at the statistics, didn't work at all. No. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. It, it is very, very hard to conclude that an, a paedophile is, is suddenly going to change. Um, but on the other hand, uh, and, and again, also, it makes my point about sentencing. Um, you know, the judge gave 16 years knowing he'd serve eight. Mm. Uh, you know, under honesty and sentencing, that judge could have given eight years and there would have been an outcry. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. And that is so part of the problem. About, I think you've got to actually look at the sentence itself. You know, eight years was always going to be too short. But I do not know in any individual case what the evidence is, and nor do you. No, I get that. But I think the principles are wrong, and I think we both agree on that. And I think the system needs to be restructured uh, with a different set of principles behind it. But stay where you are, and if you don't mind, I've got a, a video to show you, uh, of the latest from Lawless Britain. Uh, we want to discuss as well the increase in knife crime, uh, the increase in the numbers of young people being stabbed to death uh, on the streets of our country. And also, of course, we want to talk about the bullying by Dominic Raab of the Civil Service. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Anne Whittacombe, uh, former minister, of course, in the Conservative government of some time ago, uh, when they were still Conservatives, to be fair. We might come back to that in a moment. But have a look at this, Anne, just before we carry on talking um, about the sentencing problems in this country, the crime problems in this country. And one of the reasons I think people are fearful uh, of, uh, or, or less fearful of going to prison uh, is that they know they probably won't. Have a look at this attack in broad daylight in a place called King Standing in Birmingham. I mean, it's not clear why this attack is going on. It's not clear what it's all about. But what we can see is uh, several men fighting in the middle of the day, broad daylight. One of them's got a huge machete. Another one's got a plank of wood. Um, This is going on in what looks like a residential neighbourhood. One of the people with one of those mopeds is a delivery driver. I mean, this is going on pretty much on a regular basis around Britain, Anne, uh, every single day. Yeah, indeed. Uh, And um, you've got to ask yourself this question. If you were leaving the house with a knife and you knew that the odds were that you would be stopped, you would be searched, and then, crucially, not only would the knife be confiscated, but that you would be arrested, um, then that might act as a deterrent. But there is no earthly deterrent at the moment uh, to people going out with knives. And many years ago, I did a programme on gun gangs. They all routinely put a knife in their handbag and were shocked when I said that, you know, I would never dream of doing that. Um, They did it as routinely as putting a lipstick in their handbags. Mm. And some of them had used those knives. Now, if they had known when they were going out for a good night out that they were going to be stopped and searched and arrested and and, and processed, um, then they wouldn't do it. But there is absolutely no deterrent. Every time that any Home Secretary tries to up, stop and search, 
there's an outcry from the left about how they'll pick particularly, uh, you know, that it's racism, they'll pick particularly on certain sections of the community, etc. Um, but that's the only thing. You, you don't have policing anymore. You know, the chances, if you're going to go and start a fracas in the street, of a policeman also being in that street are, frankly, sub-zero. Yeah. So you need policing, you need stop and search, and then you don't just caution them and send them on their way, you actually arrest them and process them through the courts. Yes, but of it's course the court time. system... No, it really isn't difficult, is it? But the court system is, is um, stagnated because there's not enough, apparently, um, judges and there's not enough courts that are open to sell, settle all of the cases that are going through the courts. They're moving people uh, into prisons on remand who sit there for months on end because um, they can't t- be seen in the courts and so therefore then there's no more spaces in the prisons. I mean, the whole system has sort of ground to a halt collectively i don't know why and i don't know who's in charge of it and why the hell they can't fix it well i mean it does seem to me you know fairly straightforward because in the long term um or indeed not even in the long term in the medium term there are savings from having deterrent measures in place uh so it does actually pay to supply the prison places to supply the police uh to make sure that there is a great deal of police activity it actually pays to do that because you have the deterrent effect and mm. therefore crime falls. And that really can be done. And when burglary got completely out of control in the 1990s, um, Michael Howard, again at the same time I was in the Home Office, uh, introduced a mandatory prison term for a third offence. It was mandatory, mm. there was no choice. Yeah. A third offence, you know, that's the stage we've got to where people are getting away with 20, 25 offences. I know. Incredible. I know you've got to run, and Just one final question. Uh, Dominic Raab this morning in The Telegraph talking about uh, his, the accusations of him being a bully. Uh, he says high standards don't make you a bully. He's right, isn't he? He's absolutely right. I mean, now bullying is, is cried at the drop of a hat. You know, a boss raises his voice. All oh, that's bullying. A boss criticises your work. All oh, that's bullying. What are the bosses for? What are they for except to demand sound work and to criticise poor work? Yeah, and if, they they can't, and if they can't do that, what is the point of having an office structure? What is the point of doing any job? And if you're in government, of course there's going to be clashes with people because you're trying to push through your own particular ideas. But, I mean, we've just got things out of all proportion on so many fronts. I mean, one is bullying, as I say, because somebody only has to raise their voice in irritation and they're accused of bullying you know, some man touches a woman's shoulder in sympathy. Oh, it's an unwanted sexual assault. I mean, we have just got everything out of proportion. Common sense has gone out of the window. I know. Well, thank God that we're still talking about common sense, Anne. Uh, you're one of the few people that is still imbued with it. That's why you're on the Independent Republic. Thank you very much indeed. Anne Whittacombe, have a great weekend. Former Conservative Minister. Talking great sense there about what on earth has gone wrong with our criminal justice system. Because yes, the death penalty uh, is a subject that many people have a view on and we should be talking about it. You know, I had the misfortune of watching Question Time last night where you would have thought it was a taboo subject where some of the people who were in the audience and some of the people who were on the panel, including Lisa and Andy, were basically saying that they were offended by some of the things that Lee Anderson said, almost as though he shouldn't be allowed to say them. 
Lee says this. Uh, Hi, Mike. In 2004, the 13th Protocol to the European Convention on Human Rights became binding on the United Kingdom. It prohibits the restoration of the death penalty as long as the UK is a party to the convention. Is this true? Another reason to leave uh, the ECHR. Well, I don't know if that's true. It may well be. The problem with the ECHR, it seems to me, uh, is manyfold, but it doesn't have an awful lot to do with the European Union. It has an awful lot to do with something that was set up after the Second World War, uh, and most countries are in it as opposed to not in it. And I don't know whether uh, the death penalty would ever be brought back in this country. And I don't particularly feel strongly that we should bring it back, but I do think we should talk about it. And the fact that Lee Anderson has opened up this particular can of worms, I think is only for the good. Because of course we should talk about sentencing in this country. Of course we should talk about why murderers are let back out onto the street. Why people who commit sex crimes are let back out onto the street. How paedophiles are let back out onto the street when they really shouldn't be. Uh, Morning Mike says Cliff from Stockport. Here's one story to rant over on your show today about the NHS. Patients waiting up to six hours to be discharged from hospitals, waiting for their drugs from the hospital pharmacy. This affects A&E discharging patients to a ward and ambulances queuing up outside and a person dying at home because there are no ambulances available to attend. It is a bloody disgrace. It's not about money at all, just poor administration. Well, I think that is what we all know about the NHS. I think there's another NHS strike on even as we speak today. I think it's physiotherapists. It's not run very well. It's as simple as that. How about this on Friday working? Uh, This is from Mark in Devon. He says, I drive on the A38 every day around 7.30am, so it's normally very busy. But today, I would say the amount of traffic on the road was at least half in both directions compared to any other working day. It looked more like a lazy Sunday afternoon. All the best. Well, there's no question in my mind that Fridays has now become the third weekend day because people just simply do not work on a Friday. The reason I say this is because of what I saw this morning. I mean, it's normally pretty quiet coming in on a Friday anyway, but there has been a particular bit of roadworks being done. It's actually something to do with a power supply, a power cable issue. But Basically, workmen have been digging up the pavement next to a road where I park my car. Uh, every single day this week, there's been at least two guys in the hole, maybe three, at least two people outside the hole. There's been at least two or three vans parked there, um, power company vans doing obviously quite urgent work. The hole is still there, but there is nobody working on it today because it's Friday. Well, how can that be? What on earth is happening to Fridays? Why is nobody going to work on a Friday? If you're off work today, please tell me why. Please let me know. 0344 499 1000. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Chris Hobbs, former Metropolitan Police Officer, about the problem with street crime, the problem with sentencing, and the problem with letting people out on probation too early and too often. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The place to be for common sense, for the truth, for the whole truth, for nothing but the truth. Coming up in this hour, we'll keep taking your calls uh, on the creaking justice system in this country. Uh, Never mind the conversations that Lee Anderson has kicked off about the death penalty, although they're interesting enough. What I am really interested in is the way that uh, the left of this country are trying to misdirect you. They're trying to kind of cancel Lee Anderson because he likes the idea of bringing back the death penalty, despite the fact that he never never actually said we should bring it back. He never actually said that we would bring it back. He actually said that we probably wouldn't bring it back. But he did say that there were certain situations under which it's hard to argue that you should uh, execute certain individuals who have committed such heinous crimes that we shouldn't be wasting loads of taxpayers' money by housing them in our ever-dilapidating prison system. 
So Lee Anderson has done a great service for this country, in my view, by getting people talking about it. But if you hear some of the howls of derision coming from the left, you'd think uh, that he basically asked people to sacrifice their firstborn children in order to keep the taxpayers uh, happy. I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary what's going on. But what I think it has done, and what it's certainly done for me, um, is to kickstart another conversation about the problem with sentencing in this country, the problem with probation, the problem with letting people out too early, the problem with prisons being too full, the problem with there not being enough room in prisons to house all the bad people. And that's a good conversation, I think, to have. Meanwhile, coming up in this hour, we're going to talk to our good friend, Mr. Mark Littlewood, Director General uh, of the Institute of Economic Affairs, because front page of the Daily Mail today, and you know it's an important story when they're putting it on their front page, when will the Treasury get the message over tax? AstraZeneca, the giant pharmaceutical company, has basically criticised the high cost of doing business in the UK, saying that the taxes and the tax rates are discouraging. Um, so they're now going to be building a plant in Ireland and not here. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, for a Conservative government, is a pretty shameful place to be. So let's talk to Mark now and find out uh, what he makes of it all. Mark, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Good to be with you. Yeah, very good to be with you as well. I mean, interesting what's going on at the moment inside the Tory party, because there's a sort of Liz Truss side of the of the fence being being built up. We're told this morning that a pro-group, a pro-tax cuts pressure group inside of the parliamentary party is actually gaining ground. A lot of people now are going to be putting pressure on um, Jeremy Hunt and uh, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to reduce cut taxes in all sorts of areas. But for AstraZeneca to come out and actually say that uh, the Britain is now discouraging business investment. That's pretty serious, isn't it? It is serious, Mike, but also colour me unsurprised. <laughs> um, uh, if you uh, retain taxes at these sort of extraordinarily high levels, on, you know, on most estimates, the highest total tax burden since Clement Attlee's post-war socialist government, well, actions have consequences. And we saw in your news bulletin, Mike, at the top of the hour, Jeremy Hunt saying, well, we've narrowly avoided a recession. If we can concentrate on the areas where the UK has a great advantage and science and tech are amongst those, then we could be one of the most prosperous countries in Europe. But if you're seeing companies like AstraZeneca saying, well, we rather prefer the prevailing tax regime in Ireland, mm. well, we aren't going to become one of the uh, most prosperous countries in Europe. And you know, it's worse than that, Mike, because it's not just uh, the high levels of taxes. AstraZeneca have pointed out uh, is to do with the complexities and the costs around sort of NHS yeah. levies that are on pharmaceutical companies. But take corporation tax as well. Mm. Not the only thing a company will look at if they're, if they're thinking about deciding to open open a new plant or factory in the UK. It's not the only consideration, but it's a big one. And when Jeremy Hunt was running to be the leader of the Conservative Party, uh, he, he didn't get through the first round, but his proposal was to cut corporation tax to 15%. Liz Truss's was to say, let's reverse the rise and keep it at 19%. And now we're going ahead of the rise and it's going to 25%. So it's going higher and higher, but mm. there's also a level of uncertainty here. High taxes are bad, but uncertain taxes are bad for investment too. Yeah. So until we get towards the sort of things that are being intimated about on the front page of the Daily Mail, I'm afraid we're likely to see more AstraZeneca-type stories and rather less yes. growth. 
And that's even without having the conversation about the kind of self taxes that people are facing and are uh, uh, seeing going up every single day. You know, council taxes going up. Uh, you've got VAT on things now uh, because they've gone up. The VAT is higher as well. So you're immediately paying more money out every single time you put your hand in your pocket. Um, and it just seems to me that, that the government's tax policy is basically rinse people for as much as you can possibly get away with. And it seems to me to be incredibly unconservative. I would agree with all of that. I mean, I think the important thing is you've got at some point to be serious about tackling the other side of the ledger. Mm. If you do want taxes to go down, you have to show some spending constraint. And I think I'd be critical of uh, all the various conservative governments we've had since 2010 on that side of the ledger. Uh, We haven't seen a government manage to balance its own books um, since 2001. Mm. So we're, we're, we're spending even more than all of this tax money that we're bringing in. And if we're serious about getting back onto a trajectory of lower taxes, can't be done overnight. I'm not, a, I'm not an impatient man, but starting to make sure the trend is to lower taxes, we need to start to have a serious discussion about state spending. If you want to keep the triple lock on state pensions, well, maybe the NHS won't get the funding decisions that it wants. If you want the NHS to be your top priority, well, maybe we're going to have to find some economies somewhere else in the welfare system. If you want carbon net zero to be your top target, you're going to have to find cuts elsewhere. And at the moment... In terms of spending, the government seems to have a million priorities. Yeah, well, exactly and right. Therefore, doesn't really have one. And a lot of people said to me yesterday, after the sort of bun fest in Westminster Hall, you know, all hail the great conquering hero Volodymyr Zelensky. You know, there's no problem handing out billions and billions of pounds to Ukraine either. You know, and as you say, there has to be, in the end, a bit of give and take. You know, um, watching the way that the government spends our money is extraordinary. I had a really interesting conversation yesterday with the headmaster of a primary school where they're having to let teachers go as a result of the fact that, you know, costs have risen to such an extent. But ironically, as he then discovered during our conversation, one of the reasons the costs have risen is that they had to give the teachers a pay rise. So having given the teachers a pay rise, now they're going to have to make some of them redundant. And you go, well, that's economics. You should have thought of that. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And of course, um, having already listed some of the many things where uh, (laughs) the government is spending vast sums of money, the, the public sector pay round is going to force those costs up still higher and you know the the basic rules of economics are you know if something costs more you buy less of it so if teachers cost more you have fewer of them yes uh, and uh, again it's i think it's an inability to to make uh, trade-offs the government's also worried about inflation rightly uh, that's now escaped into the economy because interest rates should in my opinion have gone up uh, faster or earlier than they have so mm. we've got an inflationary problem to deal with. Uh, But, and this is one area where Liz Truss's very short-lived administration was right, I think, the long-term solution to this is economic growth. If you can get the economy growing again at, say, 2 or 3% per annum, hardly historical number, you know, hardly heroic numbers by historical standards, then a lot of this stuff is is mitigated. But if the economy is teetering on the brink of recession, I think we've avoided recession by 0.01%, we're teetering on the brink and definitely flatlining, then all of these problems become bigger and bigger over time. So I think we've got to look at the spending side, decide what our real priorities are. And that's, as you say, Mike, going to need give and take. And once we've made those decisions, you can start to get taxes down. And that's really the driver of growth. And if we don't do that, as I say, uh, inward investment is likely to flee the United Kingdom rather than be attracted to it. 
Exactly right. And then that will drive things away. I mean, I saw this morning the Bank of England predicting that we're going to go into recession. Well, that's not really particularly helpful either. You know, they keep making these predictions that seem to be uh, having a negative effect on the economy. But what do you make of this um, tax uh, cutting group of MPs? Because they've all just got a pay rise, funnily enough, 2.9%. Uh, nice for them. Unfortunately, your premise that if you get uh, a pay rise, there can't be as many of you doesn't work for MPs. They're still all hanging around. Um, but what do you make of this uh, this group? Because they're saying that they might challenge some of Jeremy Hunt's plans in his budget on March the 15th, which could be interesting if, if that's if that's what they're planning to do. Yes, it, it is intriguing. I, I know some of them um, involved in this group. I've met and spoken with some mm. of them. Uh, you know, I don't think they're trying to be um, uh, a, a, an entire rebellion against the new administration, but they want the Sunak administration and Jeremy Hunt to seriously engage in the the case for tax cuts. And I can't, I've lost count of the Conservative majority at the moment. Uh, it's fallen below the 80 it was at the last election because they lost a number of MPs. Yes. But if you've got 35 or 40 MPs, potentially the government has lost its governing majority if they were to vote against it. I think it's more likely that there will be lots of words in ears in the committee corridors mm. and in the voting lobbies and that Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak will feel the pressure from a good wing of their own party who believe that it is... Uh, pretty staggering that after uh, 13 years of Conservative government, we have the highest tax burden in our lifetimes and that that needs to be addressed as a matter of emergency. And as I said, probably not everything all at once, but begin to show that uh, over the next year or two, taxes are going to come down, not stay at their eye-watering level. And I think you'll find a good number of people who are involved in uh, the fleeting tr Liz Truss administration are going to put that case mm. quite loudly and clearly, sometimes in public, but most often behind closed doors to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor themselves. Well, let's hope so, because you would like to think that there are some members of the Conservative Party who still actually believe in low taxes, because we hear Rishi Sunak saying it all the time, that he wants to reduce taxes, but I just can't do it. Well, as you say, you know, they need to have a shopping list of where they can make uh, some savings. I mean, they're busy telling us that, you know, we should turn down our uh, energy uh, demands by 25% in order to get closer to net zero? Or how about they turn their spending taps down by 25% uh, to see whether we can actually get a bit of a tax rebate? Uh, a very good idea, Mike. I mean, sometimes people are a bit sceptical about efficiency savings in government. I mean, I sometimes uh, worry that uh, inefficiency is a feature, not a bug of government spending. It's kind of baked into the process. Mm. I wonder whether we should have a sort of effort, a serious effort every year that every government department uh, should be expected to find, I don't know, 5% of efficiency savings for sake of argument. Yeah. These are the sort of exercises that private sector companies regularly go through. When my board at the Institute of Economic Affairs says, Mark, we think we need you to make 5% of savings, I go and find them. Yeah, of course. These sort of practices don't, don't appear to apply to the public sector. I wonder if we could probably engage in that. But that will get you some of the way there. I do think the other bigger part of the, the whole picture is really deciding what our priorities are. Yeah. And it can't be to increase NHS funding every year and go for carbon net zero and have uh, better paid teachers and have HS2 and, 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 and. Um, we've got to actually decide which are the top priorities we're going to fund right. and what are some of the things presently done by the government that we're going to cease doing or at least do at a rather lower rate. Yes. And until you're willing to bite that bullet, 
well, then it's not surprising that there isn't a great deal of margin to try and get the tax burden back to something uh, slightly more regular, something slightly more pro-enterprise driven. And as Isabel Oakshaw often says to me, you know, don't mind paying uh, high taxes as long as the services are good. But the services are not very good. You mentioned HS2 there. You know, we now hear that it's not going to go where they thought it was going to go. Uh, and there's not going to be as many trains as they thought they were going to have. So apart from that, it's still going to cost billions and billions of pounds. and It still won't be ready until after I'm dead. Yeah, that's about right. And again, it's a tricky thing to do, Mike, but I'm wondering if we can find a way in which we we look at um, the claims of public sector workers for pay rises uh, being somehow uh, attached to the performance of their sector, of their industry. You know, if the the NHS was having its best year ever, waiting lists down, Mm. more and more people treated, uh, much more efficiency in the system, well, then you might sort of say, okay, well, you you know, it's time for a pay rise. But if the NHS is having its worst year ever, well, there probably isn't much room for a pay rise. And again, those are the sort of disciplines that apply automatically in the private sector that seem to elude the public sector entirely. So we've got to have something approaching performance-related pay. HS2 is a classic example of a of an enterprise which we were told was going to cost about a third of what it's finally going to cost and it's going to do mm. about five times as many things as what the final product's going to be like and as you rightly say mike uh not hitting its deadlines but nobody really seems to be sort of punished for that no. if you like no Our private I mean, sector nobody ever gets the blame by now. nobody ever gets the blame it's extraordinary i mean listen mark great to talk to you thank you as ever mark littlewood director general of the institute of economic affairs like me very concerned uh that businesses are now saying Britain as an investment is actually not a very good one because the taxes are too high. We know that. Everybody knows that. So cut them. Thank you very much indeed. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've been talking about Fridays and why Fridays appear to now be pretty much a day of rest for an awful lot of people uh, where nobody goes to work anymore, including uh, some people that were digging a hole uh, on the street not a million miles away from here. Uh, but Essex has sent me a note to say this. The power company used multiple contractors. The joiners, the jointers in vans would be on site jointing the works. Then a separate company intends to backfill the hole and a separate company to reinstate. Hence, it appears that there's no one on site. It's crazy, really. Well, it doesn't appear there's no one on site. There is no one on site. There's nobody there. There wasn't anybody there this morning. And yesterday there was and the day before there was and the day before that there was, and the day before that there was. Today there wasn't because it's Friday. And I will bet you probably by any measure that you wish to use, there won't be anybody there Saturday or Sunday. And when I come back on Monday, there might be somebody standing in the hole. We shall see. Uh, Lee says, they want to try being self-employed. I've been self-employed for 25 years. I do six days a week in all weathers, no pension, no sick pay, and one day off per week. No moaning from me. Well, Lee and Sutton Coalfield, that's exactly what an awful lot of unemployed people should know about. Uh, an awful lot of people who have office jobs should know about that if you are self-employed and you're paying more tax than you've ever paid in your life, life is pretty tough right now. And the government needs to be more representative of those people like Lee who are working really, really hard. Because some might say they're wasting their money in lots of different places. And right now we're going to talk to Thomas Farsi, author and columnist at Unheard, because he has written a fascinating piece saying we are already at war with Russia. An awful lot of people uh, suggesting that this uh, love-in with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky this week in Westminster Hall, where everybody who was in Westminster wanted to be there to sort of literally touch the cloth that he was wearing. Um, A lot of money being spent in Ukraine, but where is it all going and where will it all end up? Thomas, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. 
Hi, thanks for having me, Mike. It's yeah. a pleasure. Uh, listen, a lot of people mm. share your kind of uh, misgivings, shall we say, or your doubts about where this is all going and where it's all coming to a head at, you know, because I've been asking the question since Zelensky's speech in Parliament. Basically, you know, why are we not discussing what this might mean, what, where this could lead, what, you know, ramifications there could be for Britain? We don't seem to want to. No, absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, the point I was trying to make in that article was that everyone is entitled to their opinion when it comes to Ukraine, as on any other issue, of course. But in order to make an informed opinion, uh, you know, people have to be told the truth Mm. about what's going on in Ukraine, about what our role in Ukraine is. And Western governments and UK government and other governments have not been telling citizens, citizens the truth about our involvement in Ukraine, in the conflict for the past year. You know, we're, we're reaching the, the, the first year anniversary of this uh, disastrous conflict. And for the past year, we've been hearing that you, you know, NATO is not at war with Russia. We're simply helping Ukraine defend itself and that, you know, the equipment we're sending is purely defensive, et cetera, et cetera. And none of this is true. Mm. I mean, the truth is that, you know, we're providing all sorts of increasingly powerful military equipment. We're providing training, logistical support, intelligence support to one of the warring factions, Ukraine, including for offensive operations, as in, you know, even in Russian territory, you know, which has happened already. And this is now openly admitted even by uh, U.S. military officials, uh, such as using drones to strike in Russian airfields inside Russia and so on. So we are. Uh, you know, we are actively engaged in a military confrontation with Russia, you know, a nuclear powered mm. uh, 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 regional superpower with whom Europe shares, you know, a 2000 kilometer border. Right. And not only that, but we have been increasingly uh, escalating our support for Ukraine with, with no democratic debate whatsoever. So mm. initially it was, you know, uh, light artillery and then it became, you know, heavy artillery and then it became helicopters and drones. Then it became long range missiles, which which could reach inside Russia. Uh, now, you know, now it's tanks. Now we're sending tanks to Russia, uh, uh, high tech tanks. And, and look, Biden himself last year said that the U.S. wouldn't send tanks to Ukraine because that would essentially mean World War Three. Well, now we're all, you know, now Western governments are, are, are rushing to send tanks to Ukraine. And now Zelensky is up in the ante once again. Now he's asking for uh, for planes, F-16s. Mm. And apparently there's a lot of support for that. <laughs> well, that's Among, it. Uh, because a lot, yeah, and a lot, of the, a lot of the things which came out this week as as, as were, were things that the, the, the West, whether it's Britain or NATO collectively, is going to supply, were things that last year the West said it wasn't going to supply. You know, and they suddenly seem to have found that it's okay now to send planes, albeit they might not be British planes, they might be Swedish planes, they might be American planes, probably not British planes. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago when that wasn't going to happen. Absolutely. I mean, the West has been constantly uh, overstepping its own red lines, red lines that it said it wouldn't cross Mm. because that would mean dangerously escalating the conflict and, you know, heightening the risk of uh, of, of the West, you know, being dragged into a direct confrontation with Russia. Mm. And again, you know, just a few months ago, the, 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 the provision of tanks to Ukraine was considered unconceivable unthinkable because a lot of people said well, of course that's going to mean what you know we're basically a war in faction you know that means we're at war with russia mm. now we're sending tanks and now we're talking planes f-16s f-16s which uh, uh would likely have to be piloted by western pilots and so i mean the truth is as even the german foreign minister almost by accident admitted just uh, a few weeks ago that we are fighting a war against russia mm. As the German foreign minister said, I and, mean, and at what and, point and people have to be told the truth about this sure. and, and what's at stake. And at what point, um, Thomas, do you think 
Vladimir Putin will declare that that's actually what's going on. Because, of course, there are those who think this has been a kind of um, a very well played out tactic that, in fact, you know, the kind of the slight um, increase on a month by month basis of help, of aid, of assistance, of troops, even uh, of trainers, of all sorts of things going on in Ukraine. Help from the West has increased and increased and increased to the point where Putin kind of can't declare war, if you like, on the West, because he's already passed that point and he didn't say it at the time. Right. Well, I mean, yes. I, I know that's a whole, bit, that sounds like a mad question, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how Western strategy seem to be based seems to be based on the assumption that um, that Russia is not going to is not going to go to extreme lengths to uh, uh, to, um, you know, to, to secure what it considers to be its national interest. One, mm. you know, we may disagree, but that's how Russia perceives this conflict. Uh, Russia perceives uh, the reason, it, you know, it, it, it invaded Ukraine in the first place was that it perceived Ukraine as a threat, as, a, as an existential threat. Mm. What was happening in Ukraine, the war that had been on, the civil war that had been going on for uh, for years, Western arming of Ukraine, which was already happening before Western, uh, before Russia's invasion. And so whether we agree or not, that's how Russia views this conflict as an existential conflict, you mm. know, for, for in many respects, for its very survival. And, uh, and, 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 and the truth is that, you know, as Western governments used to know during the Cold War, is that you you can't really defeat a nuclear power in a conventional, uh, uh, you know, in a conventional war. Mm. That was very clear, uh, you know, to Western leaders at the height of the Cold War. And uh, but we somehow have forgotten that lesson, and we think that somehow Russia will accept to be military militarily defeated in Ukraine without resorting to extreme measures, i.e., the use of uh, of, of 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 nuclear. Of nuclear weapons, even if they may be, you know, tactical nuclear weapons, you know, uh, uh, which would, you know, which would only be locally used, and uh, and and look, this is not just a, pr- a concern of, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, pacifists or hippies. Uh, I mean, the, the Rand Corporation, which is the most influential military and security think tank uh, in the U.S., um, ultra hawkish, you know, not not a peacenik organization. They have, re- you know, just put out a report where they say they the, the authors warn against the risk of a protracted conflict in Ukraine. They they see that as the most likely outcome, barring more extreme scenarios, you know, a long, potentially year-long conflict. And they write that this prolonged, you know, this heightens the risk of a Russian nuclear use and mm. the NATO-Russia war. I'm quoting from the, the, the Rand Corporation's recent uh, avoiding a long war report. And, and, and hence they argue that it's in the U.S. interest to look for some polit- for a political settlement for you know for, to negotiate uh to 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 find some off ramp uh, out of out of this conflict because mm. uh, they they see you know that that scenario as of course very worrying even you know from the from the prospect of us um uh you know us interests mm. and so if even the rand corporation you know is you know a, a hawkish uh, us think tank is saying this clearly the risk is real. I mean, the risk is real. If even you know uh, very important elements of the U.S. Uh, security establishment uh, are saying this, and so we should be taking this risk very seriously. I mean, the truth is, and this is probably you know the big, the greatest lie that we've been told is that Ukraine can somehow win this war, and that's that you know, as a lot of people are saying, as Douglas McGregor, who's a you know a very a very important retired general, uh, U.S. general, recently said. Look, that's not going to happen. No one can really win this war. Uh, it's an unwinnable war. Uh, and so 
the the you know the most likely scenario uh, you know if we continue down this path and again barring more extreme uh, outcomes uh, uh, such as a nuclear conflict is kind of the afghanistanization of ukraine mm. uh, so you know a, a protracted war that goes on that goes on for years and that would have disastrous consequences clearly for ukraine uh, but also for europe as a whole i mean we got to really ask ourselves you know <laughs> What, what what are the consequences for the European continent? I mean, mm. the, the United States is, you know, relatively less concerned, you know, because it's not, you know... It's, it's a long way away. No, absolutely. Well, no, these are all very, very good questions, uh, Thomas, and I appreciate you uh, uh, coming on and, and raising them. And I think we should continue this conversation because clearly um, an awful lot of what you've said today has never been spoken about. So we'll do it. Uh, this is the place to do it. Thomas Farsi, columnist and author from Unheard. Uh, we'll hear more from him, I'm sure, coming up in the coming weeks because it's a very important question. I was asking it earlier on this week. What on earth does it mean? Where does it all go? Where do we end up? And when? I'd like to have some answers for those questions. We'll ask the government uh, and they won't tell us, of course. This is Talk TV. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk some more about Sadiq Khan uh, and his mad campaign to free London from the car. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. News talk. Money talk. talk. Business talk. Talk radio. Have a better breakfast with Hartley Brewer. Monday to Thursday mornings from 6.30 on Talk Radio. Something's cooking in the news kitchen. Eggs, sausage, bacon, beans. Hartley Brewer. Couldn't agree with you more. All the ingredients of a great British breakfast. Wake up and smell the debate. Julia Hartley Brewer. Monday to Thursday mornings from 6.30 on Talk Radio and Talk TV. On DAB Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've been talking about the violent crime uh, indulging uh, this country right now. Uh, we've got this from Brian who says that video you showed is shocking and it looks like the usual suspects. What on earth is happening in this once great country? I despair. Uh, and one from Martin in Peterborough says, we are being driven by political opinions that are not logical. It's very woke and lacks business sense. How can someone be managed properly working from home? I've observed this behaviour. It just makes people lazy. I think that's absolutely right. And talking, ab talking about the uh, situation regarding that um, terrible, terrible fight that we seem to be seeing uh, going on in a part of Birmingham where a bloke with a machete is kind of kicking over mopeds and kicking over motorcycles. They're beating people up. There's another spate of videos out there one today that I've just been seen, uh, that I've just been sent on uh, social media on Twitter. I've just retweeted it, uh, where, of course, a woman, uh, two schoolgirls are fighting on the ground. There's also um, a shocking uh, situation, which is in the mail today as well, uh, of a racially aggravated assault where a 15-year-old black girl is said to have lost nine braids as she was swung around by her hair, punched and kicked by four white assailants in what police are describing um, as an aggravated assault. They've also said that there was a woman standing nearby uh, who appeared to be egging on um, the attack, telling them to kick her in the face and to down her and to get her. Uh, the other video that I've got is is another um, a racially motivated attack by looks but this time it's a black girl pulling the hair and punching a white girl. These are all teenagers and they're just fighting in the streets. There is something very wrong going on here and nobody seems to want to talk about it. But let's talk now to Councillor Paul Osborne, who's the leader of Harrow Council. Uh, that's up in the north end of London, because we've spoken to several councillors from different parts of the outskirts of London, what you might say. Sutton, of course. We've spoken to people from Bexley Heath. We've spoken to other people who are affected by the expanding ULEZ zone. That's the ultra-low emission zone, of course. Um, because many 
councils around London are saying, hang on a minute, we didn't vote for this, we didn't ask for this, and in fact we specifically said we didn't want it. So let's find out from Paul Osborne uh, what's going on. Paul, a very good uh, morning to you, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us uh, today. This is a problem for an awful lot of ordinary people in, in, in the capital city of London, uh, but it's also something that's happening in other parts of the country as well. Tell us about what your concerns are about what Sadiq Khan's plans are. I mean, I think it's, there's two real concerns. One is it doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually deal with the problem of clean air. TfL's own um, data, the, you know, the mayor's office... The, the evidence they produce says it has a marginal impact on the particulates and NO2. It will, though, very much affect the poorest motorists, the businesses that have been struggling over the years. To me, it's just the wrong solution to the problem of Pino and at utterly the wrong time to do it. All the other pressures that people are facing on their lives at the moment. Yes. I mean, there's an awful lot of financial penalty in it as well, isn't there? Because there could be situations where not only are people being forced to pay a tax effectively um, in order to go and do their day-to-day work or to do their day-to-day school run or their grocery shopping, but also um, there are going to be people who perhaps inadvertently are going to be fined by this system. Absolutely. I mean, it's first of all, the scale of it, I don't think some people realise in, in Harrow alone, they're talking about 140 to 180 cameras being put up around the borough. Replicate that across the whole of London, and you have thousands and thousands of cameras being put up. Some people will just drive out of their, their road, not not even in Harrow, but have to come into Harrow very briefly and then go back out when you, if you're in Hearts or some other of our neighbouring boroughs. It, it's just so badly thought through mm. for something that won't actually have any real impact on the air quality in London. And, Again, a number of people will be able to afford to have a new car, will be able to afford to pay the, the charge, but a large number of people won't be able to afford it. They won't be eligible for the scrappage scheme and, and they'll just be stuck with this thing and almost trapped in their house. And what about this air quality kind of racket, as I call it, because I'm not entirely convinced that the measurements that they're using uh, are particularly accurate or indeed what they're actually measuring because I mean there are any number of reasons why air quality changes from one day to the next some of it may be driven by pollution some of it may not maybe driven by weather yeah I mean the, on their own data though even if you accept their own data this scheme won't make a difference that's the what's so scary about this thing being introduced to us their own data says whether or not you want to dispute data just looking at what they're presenting to us doesn't suggest any of this. Mm. Uh, the mayor has a habit of, of citing a imperial um, study on, on air quality. But actually, if you read it, what it says is ULES hasn't worked on its own to do anything, hasn't been effective, and actually will have a marginal impact on air quality. Mm. There are many, many more things that um, create poor air quality in London. The people's using old gas boilers is a big thing. Um, the bus fleet and, and, and the council fleets uh, Heathrow is in of itself a big thing. You know, all of these things will have a massive impact yeah. by penalising uh, motorists who are just trying to get to the doctors, trying to get to work. It's just a horrendous scheme. Mm. Absolutely right. And also, I mean, because of the way that, uh, that the TfL kind of project has operated, because of the restrictions now on driving uh, in the city of London, um, it's a very difficult place to get around. There's an awful lot of congestion, despite the congestion charge. I mean, it took me yesterday, I think about half an hour to go two miles in the centre of, uh, of London, around the sort of London Bridge area. And, you know, that can't be good for the environment. And yet it's entirely caused by traffic changes made by the mayor. Absolutely. I mean, 
when we were in opposition in, in, in Harrow before the election last May, we fought against the low traffic neighbourhoods. Yeah. Um, the mayor put them in, the council, local council, labour council at the time, put these low traffic neighbourhoods in. And also what we called ghost cycle lanes, mm. the cycle lanes where you never actually saw a cyclist in. Yeah. We campaigned against them and actually managed to get them removed before we before we took over. So in Harrow, we have no low traffic neighbourhoods, and we're very proud of that, just because it doesn't, again, solve a problem. And I take it you haven't had some massive on. massive increase in road deaths or road-related pedestrian deaths no. uh, as no, a result of that, because that's what they always say, that they're doing it to safeguard the population, aren't they? No, not at all. And But what, what all was happening, and all that happens with any of these schemes, is you just push the problem somewhere else. Mm. So instead of you know people driving... Uh, from their house, they, they were suddenly not able to drive the house. You had people who weren't able to um, get uh, Ubers home. Um, some women late at night weren't able, had to walk a long mm. distance. You had deliveries not able to get through. Uh, and what was more scary is you had ambulances and, and fire engines not able to get through. Yes. In terms of uh, the legal position, um, it seems unclear at the moment. And I've spoken to several of your sort of counterparts in different parts of the um, greater London area. They're not sure whether you can challenge this um move legally what's what's your understanding of that well we're still taking advice on this and um, we have issued a what's known as a pre-application protocol letter to a pre-action protocol letter to the mayor setting out our concerns uh we have to decide by the 24th of february if we want to go ahead with a judicial review uh, we think there are grounds to do that the mayor's response doesn't seem to have um, uh, put our fears to rest so, but we need to make a decision. We're trying to work with as many other boroughs as we can, uh, and we'll make a joint decision on whether or not we go forward. Mm. Um, we will also not not help or do anything or not at all to assist in putting up cameras or any other signs in our borough. Yes, and so, I mean, as far as we know, it's all going ahead because I keep seeing adverts everywhere for it, uh, saying, you know, soon to be an expanded outlet zone everywhere I go. So they're not short of spending money on it either at the moment. No, and, and they're looking at actually going live at the end of August. This is something that is an imminent threat to all of us. You know, this is not a, a project where they're going to take a year or two or three to actually get it in place and to give people a proper chance to change their vehicle over a much more planned period of time. Yeah. They're rushing it in. And, he, and the Mayor of London is frankly rushing this in ahead of the election. He wants to get it in and hope people forget about it when, when next May comes. Mm. And I think I've got news for him. Outer London will not forget what this inner London mayor has done to us. No, I think that's absolutely right. And well done to you. Well, we'll keep in touch, uh, Paul, to see how it all goes. And do let us know if there's anything that uh, that we need to know about. Paul Osborne, leader of Harrow Council there, uh, basically joining forces with a great many other uh, of his counterparts in various other parts of the surrounding areas of London, in Essex, in Kent, uh, now in Harrow, of course, which is up in the north, uh, and in the west as well, because people don't want this. It's anti-business, uh, it's anti-taxpayer. Uh, it's going to cause an awful lot of grief to an awful lot of people who are going to be paying even more in tax to their local economy, money that they could be spending to keep businesses afloat. And it's entirely wrong, in my view. 0344 499 1000. We'll take some calls coming next on Talk TV. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide. By your side. Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have sashayed in uh, to Friday afternoon and it is, of course, as ever, a very clear blue sky out there. By the way, uh, I just thought I'd mention this by, uh, for no particular reason, but the England rugby team will be playing Italy this weekend. Last weekend they played Scotland and lost for the third time in a row to Scotland, right? I was listening to one of their coaches today uh, being interviewed and they've started talking like politicians. He started saying things like, oh yes, um, we're very clear on what we want England to be playing like. We're very clear uh, on the style of rugby we want to play. We're very clear uh, on exactly how much work rate we need from everybody. We're very clear about the start. It's like, well, don't keep saying you're very clear about something because whenever politicians say it, you know that they're not clear about anything. And they lost. We're very clear about that as well, by the way. Alex Phillips is here. Welcome back. Great to be here. Good to see you again. Um, Alex has returned to Talk TV, having been here many, many years ago, I suppose it seems. It seems like a long time ago. Yeah, when you and I met, we were still in the European Union. I know. Gosh. And, now, and now we're not. We'll talk about that because you've got a new role with the Reform Party. Mm-hmm. So well done. Congratulations. But I want to talk to you, first of all, about the Friday fear. Because Friday has become a day, it seems to me, where... People think it's the weekend. They don't bother working. They don't come to work. This is all because I walked past a building, what was effectively a hole in the ground, a building site, which has been busy all week. And today, nobody, not one person. Yesterday and and every other day this week, there was two guys in the hole digging it. There was a power van there parked. There was two guys outside watching them. People being, you know, sort of uh, pedestrians being told to walk around fences and all of that. Today, it's completely empty. There's nobody there. Mm, do you know incredible it's uh, it's a difficult one because look i think that there is no right to work from home there should never be a right to no. work from home because if you're an employer that wants to monitor staff and get maximum productivity yes and that's best done by warm bodies in offices or, yeah. or whatever right. the, the you know the location of the industry might be then an employer should be able to demand that there are some people who i think do work from home effectively yeah. i actually think that's true uh, depends on the industry. But not all of the ones who say that they do. Right, a lot of people who've got those mag- go, jagglers. They always you know? go, oh yeah, I work so much more efficiently from home. Really? Really? Really, are but, you sure? But you know, what What does aggrieve me is this idea that people might be working for a bank or working for an insurance company mm. and sitting at home with your personal information on a laptop in their living room. Yeah. I think that's wrong. Yes. But, as a woman, one thing I would say is an idea that you can sort of have flexible working hours if you're a mother is a good thing. Because yes. there's so many women out there who think, well, I can't have my job and I can't have children. Mm. Yeah. And, and when I you can look also, at population I mean, uh, decline, yeah. that's okay. an issue. No, I get that. But I also see that, that, you know, there could be instances where women might not want to work late at night because they don't want to be travelling home late at night because it's, you know, it's dangerous in some parts of Britain, unfortunately. But but still, I just think that this whole kind of, you know, oh, well, since the pandemic, we've changed, you know, the world has changed and blended working is the way forward. But it really isn't for an awful lot of people. And so parts of the city are completely now split between what you might call manual workers who have to go to work because you can't do that job from home. I mean, but, but this is the thing. If it's now becoming that if you're digging up roads, you still don't work on a Friday. Are we now just doing a four-day week? That's crazy. I mean, there are massive trade-offs involved with the working from home revolution, as Mm. people like to call it. One is the fact that actually for some companies, they do get to save a lot of money on having to lease a a property. They're having to lease an office. I mean, certainly, you know, the the political party I'm in now, we all work remotely and come together digitally. And you don't need an office necessarily. And right now, we don't. I mean, moving forward, that's probably likely Mm. to be a more pressing issue. But, you know, the other trade-offs are, one, the fact that there's less footfall for 
companies, you know, mm. whether it's the sandwich shop, whether it's, you know, the, the yeah, pub dry cleaners where people congregate after work, there's, you know, that's going to hugely affect them when footfall mm. on the high street dips very low. Right. The other big trade-off, and this is the thing that people aren't talking about, humans are sociable animals. We're supposed to be yes. hanging around together. And, you know, one thing I noticed during the pandemic when we were all siloed into our own microcosms, mm. glued to social media, is all this wacky activism popped yeah. up. You know, people are sitting there engrossed in social media. They're not mixing with people from different backgrounds and different classes and different walks of life in the local boozer. They're not having that interaction, mm. which is fundamental to yeah. humanity. Absolutely. And I think that there's something quite dark. And I suppose the other thing is, if you're going to work from home, then I think you've got to accept that that you're going to be under surveillance. Mm. Because if I was running an office and someone said, I'm working from home, I would want to know if they're sitting at their computer getting the job done yeah. Or not, and so that means actually embracing technology, which essentially spies on the person at mm. the computer. Yeah. I don't like that direction of travel. No, but if you're there and you need to make sure that there's productivity in your workplace, what are the choices you have? If but people also, aren't don't present? you think though that there also there's a danger of creating, as I said, this kind of two-tier society where you know, yes, you're working from home, but you're getting everything delivered. You know, you're getting your groceries delivered, you're getting your Amazon orders delivered, whatever it is you're buying. You know, you're not venturing out into a place where people are employed. Mm. So you might be very careful about that as well because soon maybe the people that bring you the stuff won't be employed either and yeah. you'll have to go somewhere else to get it. Mm -mm. No, it's true. I think, you know, it's every every single individual is different um, and some people are brilliant working from home mm. and they actually use extra time where they're not commuting to do a workout and eat healthily because they're not having to go down to the sandwich shop and right. fill their face with an 800 calorie bacon butty or right. whatever. Um, but then there are other people who will be lounging around in their pyjamas mm. with the slanket on, digestive yeah. crumbs down their chest with the telly on in the background. So, And without it, wishing to uh, in any way single out public sector workers I'm afraid the civil the service in particular well I think the public sector it seems to me from they people that I've spoken to are much less likely to be uh, very productive shall we say unless they're being supervised I mean look at the Dominic Raab story we've got Dominic Raab having to defend himself today in the Telegraph saying that you know I'm not a bully I just expect high standards and what's wrong with right. that? The civil service is the nexus of progression in this country mm. the people who are making our laws imposing our laws making sure that departments run smoothly getting passports processed you know getting waiting lists mm. down if they're all working at home I mean we've seen the backlogs we have in so many areas of our public service yeah. and I think you can question whether the productivity level has massively dipped as a result of the yeah. pandemic and people not getting back into offices. I mean, some departments have fewer than, you know, lower than 25% yeah. presence. Right. I think that's a disgrace. And Jacob Rees-Mogg tried to fix that. And look right. what happened to him. You know, he was yeah. sort of vilified as some kind of devil incarnate for leaving, you know, notes on people's desks saying, yeah. please come back to work. Well, no, exactly. Um, but actually, he ran a department called, what, the Department for Brexit Opportunities and Getting Stuff Done or whatever right. it was, you know, maximising output or something. Very small department, well, that department was vanquished, right. you know, after a couple of months or right. something. It's the department we actually need most right yeah, now. Absolutely right. I mean, we need much more to have a department of doing stuff via Brexit and making Brexit work and making it happen in many ways, don't we? Right. Rather than a department but, for you know, net why zero. Why do we have you know, tens of thousands of asylum seekers holed up in hotels and not being deported? Yeah. Because there are huge backlogs in processing those applications. Yeah. You know, why are people unable to go on their holidays because their new passport hasn't been delivered? Because the Home Office just isn't working up to mm. speed and correctly. Why are there big crises in the NHS where more money is being put in than ever before, yeah. but the output is even worse? Yes, there's been a pandemic, but who's there 
looking after the admin and the, the nuts and bolts and making sure those waiting lists are dealt with. Mm. The civil service are the ones who have to problem solve yeah. along with the ministers to get us out of a quandary. Britain's clearly in a quandary yeah. right now. Well, and this I've been is not saying the time this to for, down for, tools. I've been saying this for absolutely months and months, even before the strike started, that, you know, no point does anybody think of blaming the NHS for the problems. They keep blaming the government. Well, what about the people running it? What about mm. the people running the NHS who aren't running it very well? Mm. Those, to me, seem to be the people we should be blaming. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's difficult. I think government policy has a lot to do with it. And the idea that we've had this sacred cow structure of a national health service, which must never be changed in mm. any way whatsoever, which frankly isn't fit for purpose with a growing and ageing population. And we should be looking at actually having a big discussion about how to reform the NHS. Mm. People are starting to talk about it. There is a halfway point between the America... Um, you know, insurance system, which is pretty brutal, the British system, which is entirely state-run, or the European model. Yeah. And as someone who's actually lived in Europe a lot, that works the quite European well, model it? functions very well. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. This may be a good idea as well. This is a story in The Times this morning from their science editor, Tom Whittle. Apparently, there is now technology being developed um, at Duke University in the US by somebody called an ethicist. Uh, which presumably is somebody who does ethical things as opposed to unethical things. Um, if if you start daydreaming at your job at your desk, there is a device which can de which can d define what daydreaming is and can see that you're daydreaming and can send you a little jolt of some kind or other, possibly electronic, to jolt you out of your torpor. That's that, a bit worrying, that's isn't it? That's dystopian. Isn't that a horrible. bit worrying? Well, they can actually see what's going on in your mind. So they can it? apparently measure whether your brainwaves are daydreaming or not, right? But you'd presumably have to be hooked up to something. And then if you start, like, so losing your concentration, you know how they have those things for dogs? You know, like you put an electronic um, sort of um, collar on them. But then you buy, have you not seen this? You can, I don't have a dog. I've seen, them, I've seen them in America. I've not got one either. Yeah. But I think you can buy them here, but they may be illegal here. But my friend of mine had one. Because in America, there are a lot of gardens that don't have fences, right? So they've got the series of sort of metal pins and you put them around the area, mm. the perimeter of the area you don't want the dog to go beyond. And if the dog goes beyond the, the perimeter, there's no fence or anything. He gets an electronic zap oh, and the dog goes, Woo, and comes and then learns not to go there anymore. So that's what this is like. Well, you know, there this you go. There's your one. solution. I think Dominic Raab should introduce yeah. Ministry, Ministry of Justice. It's, a new, it's called um, an electroencephalogram. Yeah, I mean, that just sounds like something from an Asimov novel. I'm not really for so, it. I'm so a bit not, of a Luddite. So that's not going to be part of the new reform <laughs> um, manifesto then? I don't know if I'm feeling so you're, you're back. So you're back in politics, effectively. I know. So what's yeah. going to happen? What's going to be do, what's going to be the order of business? Do you know what? I'm, I'm going to be candid because I think, you know, I want to be candid. Mm. I'm that sort of person. I'm not a typical politician no. who circumlocutes around a subject. But I did actually go back to the Conservative Party after the whole Brexit thing. Mm. I thought, you know, I mean, there wasn't much going on. They had an 80-seat majority. And I thought, OK, let's, uh, let's see what we can do with this. Yes. It seems to be the correct direction of travel. What on earth oh, has happened to that? It's a disgrace. Right. I mean, they have completely ransacked democracy, essentially. I mean, the last year of these protracted parlour games and psychodrama is disgusting. Mm. It's hugely affected people's lives. It's completely... I mean, no wonder people weren't investing in Britain when they didn't even know who the Chancellor yeah. was or what the agenda was. And we're constantly hearing now, you know, we're, we're learning that big pharmaceutical companies are setting up in Ireland because of our tax regime. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, it, it, 
I came to the conclusion that actually the Tory party is broken beyond yeah, repair. There are is. very good people in it. There are some people I really admire mm. in that party. Uh, but the party itself is broken beyond repair. I mean, to have an 80-seat majority and commit suicide as a political yeah. movement Well, it was described to me the other done, day as just now a collection of tribes. That's kind ridiculous. of what it is, isn't it's it? It's a coalition Factions. government without the compelling yeah. forces of actually having to broker deals mm. and get things done. Right. And then it, it also occurred to me, looking at the polls, there are so many people out there who are homeless. Yeah. They're faced with a binary choice of either a party that can't get things done, evidently, and a party that doesn't want to do the things that people want mm. them to do. So where do they go? Right. They need somewhere to go. And I thought, well, look, you know, the Brexit Party was an incredible movement that got incredible things done. If it wasn't for the Brexit Party, we'd be in the European Union now. There'd yeah. be, a, you know, it'd be a, a constant mess. It's not ideal. The deal that was made wasn't brilliant. So there's still a lot of work to do there. But it's essentially been on, you know, uh, under under surface level, mm. ticking over and building and building and building in this now reform UK. That is my natural political home. I've yeah. always been part of that movement. And I just thought, you know, it's time to step up and do something. Yeah. I can't just keep shouting at the television, you know, head in hands. Every time the Conservative Party wants to get in their little factions and play their sixth form debating society games while the country crumbles. Mm. That's just not possible. And looking back on my whole political history, first of all with UKIP, then the Brexit Party, one thing I realised is only when there's that electoral pressure on both main parties in politics does, does stuff happen. Yeah. Otherwise, there's this sort of sense of entitlement and complacency where all they're thinking about is, do I get to keep my seat? Oh, let's put this past a mm. focus group. Let's chop and change on that. Oh, we've got to be nice. Oh, we can't upset this country. We can't actually stand up for Britain. They're lily-livered. Mm. They're venal, by and large, in that parliament. And the only time they suddenly think, right, I need to be delivering, I need to be listening to what people are asking me to do and actually making sure that happens is when there's a threat. And so that's what needs to happen. Mm. There, there needs to be another choice because if you are right-wing rather than left-wing, there's nothing for you. No. The Conservatives are defunct, basically, at this point. And what have you got? I mean, Keir Starmer's faux red wall, you know, oh, I'm going to do Brexit, but is he? Of course he's not. Mm. Um, or, you know, the, the sort of further left you go with those other parties. Mm. I mean, I couldn't vote for any of them. No. And there are millions of people out there like me. So they need a political home, and that's what we're going to provide. OK. Very impressive. Um, they're also just getting a pay rise as well, aren't they, the venal MPs? But there we are. Um, Alex Phillips, thank you very much indeed. And we'll be seeing a lot more of Alex, I'm sure, in the coming weeks and months. We've got more to do, more of your calls to take, of course, as well. Um, and a couple of interesting stories to tell you as well. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.